0: What is so simple that a child can wade into it, yet so expansive that an elephant can swim? Gospel of John, right? (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm starting this morning with a riddle because our subject this morning, the Gospel of John, is a kind of riddle, you might say. Uh, If you're familiar with the book, you know uh, it's plain and simple, It is maybe one of the most simple books to read, yet it's mysterious and profound, maybe like no other book. An old commentator wrote, uh, He will not be in tune to the book if at the end the gospel does not still remain strange, restless, and unfamiliar. When we finally feel as if we have mastered John's portrait of Jesus at once, there's a shift and we begin to ask new questions. We discover deeper truths. And this is true because, quote, the book penetrates more deeply into the mystery of God's revelation in the Son than the other Gospels and perhaps more deeply than any other biblical book. Now, I'm not sure I can verify that claim, but when I read the book, it feels that way to me. And apparently, the early church agreed. You probably know that many of the early church buildings used images and symbols, you know, stained glass. This is very modern, by the way, but this isn't typical uh, behind me here. Uh, But uh, they used stained glass and mosaic tiles to depict images that uh, had various themes that were found throughout Scripture. It was common for the Gospel of Mark to be depicted as a man, It'd be just a man, the image of a man depicting the gospel of Mark. The gospel is the plainest and most straightforward. You might even say the most human of the four. A lion was used to represent Matthew, who saw Jesus, of course, as the lion from the tribe of Judah. An ox was used for Luke because it is the animal of service and sacrifice. Luke's depiction of Jesus is that of the great servant of men and the universal sacrifice for mankind. Any idea what animal was used or what the church used to depict the gospel of John? Well, maybe a lamb would be good, right? Uh, An eagle. They used an eagle. Why would they use an eagle? Well, Barclay helps us here. He says, the eagle of all living creatures alone can look straight into the sun and not be dazzled. And John, of all the New Testament writers, has the most penetrating gaze into the eternal mysteries and the eternal truths into the very mind of God. It may be that John's gospel feels so elusive because he takes us to such heights. As we gaze into the sun, its radiance, or you might say his radiance, immediately forces us to look away. And so, like eagles... We're going to take flight this morning. We're going to take flight through the Gospel of John. I've titled this message, as you can see, Soaring Through the Gospel of John. My goal this morning is to fly through the entire book of John in 40 to 45 minutes. So it's, it's an introduction, right? It's an overview. That's, what, that's my goal. We'll see if we can accomplish it. I, I trust that. I only have so many pages here, so there, there will be an I can guarantee you there will be an ending. Uh, Although an overview, I'm hoping to capture enough of its heart uh, that you and I might have a good sense of the book. So in other words, uh, as we soar through John's gospel, we'll encounter three destinations, three destinations that prove Jesus is the Son of God and that believing in him brings eternal life. I don't know if you have your Bible open to the gospel of John, but I'll invite you to open up to John chapter 20, we're going to go kind of to the back end of it here, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I'm going to just let this passage be kind of our, the ringing note for us as we kind of travel through the book. And so as is our uh, tradition here at Rosedale Bible Church, if you would please stand and I'll read these couple verses as we begin. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Amen? You may be seated. This is, of course, the purpose statement of John's gospel, and it is really, I think, probably the clearest purpose statement of any found In Scripture. And we have in in this purpose statement really our first destination. Our first destination is this. The aim of of John's gospel is belief. The aim of John's gospel is belief. Uh, John makes it clear that the miracles or the signs performed by Jesus are recorded in this book, and they have a distinct purpose. They're recorded in order that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believing that we would have life in his name, thus believing or belief, uh, is very important to John. It's a central theme of the book. It's so important, in fact, that he uses the verb 98 times in this book, which is far and away the most uses in any New Testament book. And in all those uses, he never once uses the noun form, which is interesting, which which would be translated faith. He never speaks of faith. He speaks of belief, or believing in, or believing that. It's always in the verb form. Many have speculated that John avoids the noun to stress the active nature of believing. Again, to speak of one's faith is to speak of something static or stationary. But to believe is to take action. It's to engage the total response of the person toward God. As it's used in the New Testament, belief does not imply that we hold our convictions about the Lord Jesus Christ lightly. When the Bible speaks of belief, it points to, as Leon Morris says, firm trust, solidly based, and affecting the entire life of the believer. Therefore, when John calls you and me to believe, he is calling us to embrace Christ with our mind, with our heart, and our will. Belief in the Bible involves knowledge, assent, and truth. On knowledge, faith and knowledge are commonly thought of as opposites. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone say, well, I can't know but I just believe. The sense of, is that there's a, there's a distinction between knowledge and belief or faith. Uh, this kind of thinking does not capture what John means when he calls us to believe. The Bible does not present belief and faith to us as some uh, existential leap into the dark. I'm convinced the Bible presents belief that is based in knowledge. Belief that is based in knowledge. Specifically, the sure foundation of God's divinely revealed truth. The scriptures. One way we see this demonstrated is through John's use of the phrase believing that. He speaks of believing that, dot, 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 which we'll look at some examples. And it's followed by a propositional truth claim. So believe that, and then a propositional truth is given. It's a statement of fact. And so, uh, and this statement of fact identifies the content of saving faith. Some examples John 8, verse 24. John 8, 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. It's a propositional truth statement. One must believe that Jesus is God. John 11, verse 27 is another example. Eleven twenty seven says, She said to him, Jesus, Lord, I believe that, this is a resurrection or the, the response from Martha, She said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. One must believe here that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. 11.42, another example is found. I knew that you always hear me, but I said, this is Jesus praying here. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. This example proves that one must believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. Finally, one must believe that Jesus is one with the Father. This comes to us in in John chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. One must believe that Jesus is God. One must believe that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God. One must believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. One must believe that Jesus is one with the Father. All of these things are propositional truth claims given to us in the gospel. We must believe these things. They demonstrate that belief is not opaque trust apart from knowledge. Friends, don't believe the hype. The gospel message as revealed in scripture has a factual, historical, and intellectual basis. When John writes about belief, he has no thought of subjective whims. He speaks of something that is grounded in objective, propositional truth. John chapter eight, verses 45 and 46. By the way, you don't have to follow me to all these passages. You can just listen, but if you're quick with your Bible, if you're quick with your sword, and uh, you want to do that, go right ahead. John chapter 8, verse 45. But, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts, convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus says it there. He's speaking the truth. I told you that John is not only calling us to embrace Christ with our minds, but with our hearts as well. Simply knowing the facts is not enough. Quote, faith not only knows the truth, but also also assents to it and wholeheartedly embraces the truth. The truth is known and it is believed. End quote. Moses is a good example here of this. Moses is an example of a man who knew the troth- truth and he believed the truth. You remember what the book of Hebrews says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was a man, Moses, excuse me, has more than mere knowledge. He was persuaded in the depths of his heart that the riches of Christ were more valuable than the treasures of Egypt. Paul is another example. He knew the truth and he believed the truth. A couple weeks ago, I kept returning to this passage in 2 Timothy 1.12, and it's relevant again. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Yet there's even more than knowledge and assent found in the belief that John speaks of in this gospel. John is calling us to believe with our mind, our heart, and our will. Belief in the Bible involves knowledge, assent, and finally, as I said earlier, trust. It involves trust. John Murray writes, Faith is knowledge passing into conviction, and it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith can't stop short of self-commitment to Christ. It is receiving and resting upon him. Paul said, whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. All three are involved there. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. He sells everything and he buys that field. When John calls us to believe, he has no intention that Christ would be used merely to escape punishment. Maybe you're familiar with Pascal's wager. It's not what he has in mind when when John speaks of belief. The belief that John calls us to is belief in a person, a person who is the sum of all righteousness, all life, and all satisfaction. Therefore, belief engages the whole of our being. It's rooted in knowledge, it stirs our convictions, and it beckons every commitment. There's a number of passages we could go to here. I'll just give you them. John three fourteen and 15 tells us that we must look to Jesus. This is the language that John uses. We must look to him. John 6, verses 50 through 58 says that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's the kind of commitment. That's the kind of imagery that John is using to eat him and to drink him. We must receive him, as 112 says. We must come to him. Again, it's so simple, yet it's so profound. Chapter 5, verse 40. Quote, belief is leaning wholly on Christ for redemption, for righteousness, for counsel, for fellowship, for sustenance, for direction, for comfort, for his lordship, and for all in life, that can truly satisfy. Amen? As we move away from John's aim, our second destination comes into view, and it's this one. The subject of John's gospel are signs. The subject of John's gospel are signs, or the subjects. It's a weird sentence. Notice again in John's purpose statement, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs. Remember, we just read it. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is the signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John uses the word "signs" 17 times in this gospel. I'll give you just a couple examples here. So you can see it kind of emerge in the book. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of the signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Verse 18 of that same chapter. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs... That He was doing. Chapter 3, verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs again that you do unless God is with him. Chapter 4, verse 48, another example. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, will you not believe? Chapter 6, verse 2, verse 14, verse 26, verse 30, chapter 7, verse 31, 9, 16, 10, 41, and it goes on and on and on. So many uses of this term sign. These signs are, are miracles performed by Jesus that John is recording in order to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Interestingly, the signs are either preceded or followed by a discourse, by some kind of discussion, discussion. Uh, a conversation, a talk, even sometimes a debate that transpires. So as we glide through the book, we're going to see a miraculous work, a sign performed by Jesus, and then some type of instruction by Jesus that, that is used to help us understand something about that sign. And sometimes those, d- those discussions come before the sign, and sometimes they come after the sign. But that's the pattern that we see in John. Long discourse and then a miracle, or a miracle and then a long discourse. These discourses contain something less than an interpretation, but they certainly contain more than a passing nod. So there's something to be connected between the sign and the discussion or the discourse. Now, from a kind of an analytical kind of perspective, one of the greatest challenges that this book, uh, of this book, is determining just how many signs there are. Strictly speaking, that is. Commentators generally agree on six of them, but there's great debate about whether Jesus walking on water, the resurrection, and the miraculous catch of fish, which is at the end of the book in chapter 21, if these miracles are, strictly speaking, signs that John is talking about. Now, if we take the position that the signs are directly connected to some kind of meaningful conversation or discourse, as I've suggested this morning, uh, then there are seven official signs found in the book of John. I'm gonna give you eight though. <laughs> Again, I don't know. And and at the end of the day, the, the point isn't that we narrow down what exactly is a sign. The point is that Jesus did miracles, and these miracles prove that Jesus should be believed, and that we would believe in him and have life in his name. That's the point. So whether we find six, seven, or eight or more, and then we know as well. If if they were all written down, the books in the world couldn't contain them. There are tons of miracles that Jesus did, and so I'm going to give you eight this morning, Um, seven or eight. I think there's eight here. We'll see what they prove. So number one, Jesus is the source of life. This is the first sign. The first sign is the changing of water into wine. You're very familiar with this miracle. This miracle happens at a wedding in Cana when when the wine ran out. Jesus told the servants to fill the stone water jugs with water. When the men drew the water from the jug, well, it had changed to wine, you recall, the first sign helps us to see that Jesus can bring about a new beginning. He is or he is changing the water of Judaism, you might say, into the wine of Christianity. We learn what this means in the discourse that follows that miracle in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, you remember that he, that Jesus spoke to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night. And this man Nicodemus is learning well that his religion isn't enough. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 8 or verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus was learning that he needed a new beginning, and he needed A new birth. Jesus is the source of life, and the second miracle shows the second sign that Jesus is the master over distance. I'm hoping that as we kind of glide through or or fly over this and look at all these miracles, you'll just you'll see the strength of the argument that John is making kind of emerge as we kind of glance at each of these. And so, Jesus is the master over distance. We find this in chapter four. As the chapter begins, we find Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Jesus tells the woman about living water. Chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it, who it, it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And if someone drinks this water, they will never thirst again. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As the conversation continues, the woman's sin is exposed and she comes to believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Now, all of this is brought out in the sign of the nobleman's son. The man's son was ill unto death. The nobleman, or the official, went to Jesus and asked if he would come to Capernaum to heal his son. Look at chapter 4, verse 49. The The official said to him, "'Sir, come down before my child dies.' Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea Judea to Galilee. Jesus demonstrates that he is the master over distance. He has power over space, you might say. His words delivered to the Samaritan woman are true, that life is found in him. The third sign proves that Jesus is the master over time. This is the healing of the man who was lame for 38 years. Chapter 5, verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. After a brief discussion with the man, Jesus says to him in verse 8, chapter 5, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his, he took up his bed and he walked. Amazing. However, there's a problem. Look at the end of that verse. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So there's a problem with the miracle this provokes, of course, as you know, this provokes a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees, who are so blinded by the religion that they're unable to see the wonder of Jesus in this moment. They can't even see it. But Jesus did such a miraculous thing. If you don't know, the Jews prohibited work on the Sabbath, and so for a lame man to pick up his mat and walk on a holy day would have been breaking the law. And so these legalistic Jews were unable to see that Jesus was, in fact, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is the master over time. It's interesting that they're addressing the shadow of the law and the, the light. You know, the fulfillment is standing right in their midst. They can't even see it. Something this miracle and the discourse that follows demonstrate is, as I've said, Jesus is the master over time. Of course, Jesus understood that the Jews were legalistic and they had this legalistic observance of the Sabbath, yet he decided to heal on this day. He knew what he was doing. And so when Jesus works, he does so on his timetable. There's an application for me and you. God always works according to his timing, not ours. And we see it in that miracle. Moving on, John 6, we learn that Jesus is the bread of life. Here we have the fourth sign, the feeding of the 5,000. This miracle is recorded in all four of the Gospels. John's imagery finally, who finally moves away from water, okay? And we get some different imagery that comes to us. We, we saw the water turn to wine. We saw the promise of living waters. And we see this man who was healed, who was trying to get healing in that water, which is, we didn't read that, but he was trying to be healed from the pool of Bethsaida. As you might suspect, bread, in both its actual and metaphorical meaning, had great significance in the first century. Now, we'll cover those details in the future, but we should know that bread was used to to sum up food in general. Bread was sustenance. It had a metaphor, a wider meaning, a metaphorical meaning that, that included all of the care of life, you might say, the keeping of life. And so when Jesus gives us instructions to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he's not just saying, give us the you know, loaf of bread. That's not what he's saying. He's saying much more than that, right? He's, he's saying, give us this day the provisions we need for life. Give us all that we need. Therefore, when Jesus feeds 5,000 with five barley loaves and two fish, what is he demonstrating? He's demonstrating that he has the power to supply every need. In the discourse that follows this miracle, Jesus makes some of his most memorable statements. You're familiar with chapter 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then verse 48 of that chapter, it's very succinct. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is clearly the supplier of our deepest needs. He's the bread of life. And he's not only the bread of life, but moving on, he is the master over nature. Now, I'm only going to just take a glancing nod at this miracle. There's a great debate on whether or not this is an official sign. This is Jesus walking on the water. I'd say it's a pretty big sign. <laughs> okay. Jesus walking in the water. Although the way that John places it between the discourse of you know, feeding the 5,000 and the actual miracle, or the discourse of the miracle and Jesus' discourse, is a little bit structurally, it's hard to kind of understand what John is doing there, but it's a miraculous thing that happens. Jesus walks on water. And so in John 6, verses 15 through 21, we read the story of Jesus walking on the water. Again, there's debate about whether or not this is strictly speaking one of the signs. Whatever the case may be, it's an amazing miracle, and Jesus here demonstrates his mastery over nature. The sixth sign is found in chapter 9. John is going to move again from water to bread to the imagery of light. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. Chapter 9, verse 5 says this, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. This sign is done to validate what was said earlier in the discourse in chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You don't believe me? Watch what I do with this man who is blind and he heals him what John is doing here uh, through the book. These words in the healing of the man born blind demonstrate that. Number six, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And that, well, as this discourse continues, he divides people. Because light does divide. There is light and there is dark. And so the distinction between the light and the dark, the day and the night, is distinct. What comes through in this miracle and the discourse that surrounds it is this. Jesus is not universally accepted. We see that kind of animosity towards Jesus grow throughout the gospel. Happens in all the gospels, and John is no different. As Leon Morris says, the teaching of Jesus may be rejected, and the people even refuse to receive the blind man, which they will. Some will. There are those who welcome the light and those who reject it. That brings us to the seventh sign, and this is found in John chapter 11. This is one of the highest, most significant, and beloved miracles found in all of Scripture. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The point here is simple and obvious. Jesus has power over death. Chapter 11, verse 25 and 26 Jesus said to her, "I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die." Do you believe this? The compassion and anguish of Jesus for his people also demonstrates is also demonstrated in the moments before this miracle. Look at verse 33. Same chapter. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is Mary now, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. I'm not sure if that's the highest miracle in the Gospel of John, but it's pretty close. Soaring through the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus as the source of life as the master over distance, as the master over time, as the bread of life, master over nature, as the light of the world, that he has power over death, and then finally, he has power to save. Now, for this miracle, we have to follow, we have to travel all the way to chapter 20. If chapter 20 and the resurrection is the final sign of That John gives us, then it's possible that chapters 13 through 16, there's a long narrative there with Jesus in the upper room, and and that could be the discourse that might maybe is connected to this sign, which would make a lot of sense, and it would fit the pattern that John has given us throughout the book. Chapter 20 gives us the, the account of the resurrection. Of course, for John and for us, the resurrection is indispensable evidence of the value of Jesus's death on the cross. What John has done throughout this book is make the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. He is equal to God. We haven't even talked about this, but he's the great I Am. And John uses a number of those I Am statements throughout the book to again demonstrate that Jesus is equal with God, which we will look at in the weeks ahead. The world was created through him and nothing, nothing came into being outside of him. John wants us to return to the question on every page, is Christ all he claims to be? If Jesus did not rise from the dead and he is not the son of God, then it follows that his death on the cross is the death of an ordinary man and it has no value to you and me. If, on the other hand, Christ actually rose from the dead He not only demonstrated He is all that He claims to be, but that His work has the value set forth in the Scriptures. Namely, as we celebrated this morning, that He is our substitutionary sacrifice. If we're eagles and we're flying around, we're soaring around the mountaintop, chapter 20 might be that mountaintop. It might be the highest place in this book. And if there's, a, if there's a pinnacle, if there's a crowning point on the mountain, I think I would propose to you that it's Thomas' confession. And this comes to us in John chapter 20, verses 24 and 29. And notice John does this right before he gives us the purpose statement of the book. John chapter 20, verse 24 Keep in mind what we said about belief as well as I read this. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, notice what he says, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, of course, Jesus knows everything. He knows what's in the heart of Thomas. Put your finger here and see my, see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's the pinnacle, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus kind of gives us a nod. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then we have our purpose statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs that we've covered are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life, not just any life, but eternal life in his name. Now, any good story, as you know, reaches an apex and then falls down. And so John is no different. He knows how to tell a good story. It is fact, but it's written down in the story form. And so we have one more chapter. We have chapter 21. And this is our third destination, finally. This is the result of John's gospel, and it is simply this. It is to follow. The result of John's gospel is to follow. In chapter 21, night and darkness come together in Jesus' absence and the disciples' failure to catch fish. Jesus is not around and they can't even do their job. As the day breaks, Jesus stands on the shore, he instructs them to cast their nets and as you know, John's, you know, doing his thing and there's another sign and there's a miraculous catch of fish. It happens in John 21. Following this final sign, Jesus speaks to Peter and gives him a commission to tend the sheep, that is to shepherd the people of God. As the book closes, John highlights an instruction from Jesus that I believe serves as somewhat of an ending note of the book. And it's an instruction. He tells him, follow me. Verse 19, the context of this verse is that Jesus had just told Peter how he would die. And he's basically saying he's going to die of crucifixion. He's going to suffer a painful death. So in verse 19, Jesus, there's a parenthetical statement here. This, is he, this he said to show by what kind of death he was glorifying God. And after saying this, after telling Peter how he would die, Jesus says to him, follow me. We move then to the beloved apostle, to the writer of this book, to John. So verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This was earlier in the story. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? I know I'm going to die of crucifixion, but what about him? Jesus said to him, if it it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me what is that to you? You follow me. I think there are a few statements in the Bible that are more pregnant than that statement right there. What is it to you? Follow me. The gospel of John affirms the reality that if we want to follow Jesus, we must be totally committed to obeying him. That's the belief that John is speaking of in this book. But God's call and the results of our obedience are different for each of us. And that's what Peter and John kind of demonstrate. The end of the story for each of those is going to look a little different. God calls all kinds of people with all kinds of purposes. Some are like Peter, and some are like Paul, like John, excuse me. And so, as our journey comes to an end, I hope you've seen the logic and the evidence that John uses to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing Him. Believing in him brings eternal life. John's aim is belief. His subject is the signs or the miracles of Jesus, and the result is a charge. It's a charge to follow him, which really rounds out everything that he's telling us about what it looks like to believe in Jesus. To believe him is to follow him. I believe this charge given to Peter transcends. Peter's charge becomes ours because the outcome of belief is obedience. And obedience for John comes to us in the form of what I'm calling a loving rebuke, because it is a little bit of a rebuke, but it's a loving rebuke. And it's this, what is that to you? Follow me. Amen.